All right, Nashville and beyond, you're listening to Ghost Town. I'm Creepy Steve. Welcome, welcome. Sorry for the dead air before. It's my debut. Can you forgive me? Just getting into the swing of things. Hope you're having a nice weekend. It's a sunny day here in Nashville. It's hot as hell, but you know what? What's What else is new in the summertime around here? All right, I had an intro song not playing for me. That's all right. I can wing this. We're going to do a couple of artist spotlights here. Let me tell you about my show a little bit. Ghost Town with Creepy Steve. Now, not so much as scary as it may sound. I'm, I'm actually more into reviving the uh, lost rock and roll souls of the past, specifically the post-punk and new wave era of the late 70s, early 80s. This includes both sides of the pond. I just really got into that music. I just don't think that style of rock and roll is, uh, is just championed enough. So here I am taking it upon myself. Going to start off with a spotlight here. Going to play several songs from this band. Uh, this is a really good start for the theme I'm boasting here. This is a trio out of Woking, Surrey. And I know I didn't pronounce that right, but I'm from the left side of the pond. So doing my best here. These guys were right in the middle of the punk scene in London. Um, you know, the angry young men attitude. They didn't like what was going on. They needed a change. They were tired of young people not being listened to. And, uh, their whole angle was they, they instead of wearing the ripped clothes, they decided to wear the smartly tailored suits. And uh, this kind of spawned the label of the mod revival, which they shunned. These guys always wanted to shun labels, and the media was always trying to slap it on them. Post-punk, new wave, mod. These guys always refer to it as jam music. And that's just who these guys are, the jam. Simple enough. You've got Paul Weller. Lead vocals, main songwriter, that's the driving force. He plays the guitar. Bruce Foxton, solid bass player, and on drums, Rick Butler. I'm sorry, Buckler. We're going to kick it off with our first single. This was released in 1977 on Polydor Records. These guys got signed. They took punk to a whole new level. This is In the City. You're listening to Ghost Town with Creepy Steve. Fool. I won't say 
Now, I hope I've got this right. Paul, Rick, Bruce? Yeah. Okay, good. One of you, I forget which, was quoted as saying that you hope that your music or that you don't want your music to become Americanized. If that is, in fact, a correct quote, what does that mean? That you, what happens when music gets Americanized? Does it get too commercial or what? Yeah, well, in terms of us, um, it's basically down to, like, sort of smoothing the sound out. I mean, we're very raw, energetic, sort of sounding band, obviously totally good. British sounding. Mm -hmm. uh, you listen to most of the radio stations over here, it's just got that same sort of, I don't know, Muzak sort of sound. Uh, I think music is a great communication between people and it, uh, it should be used for something more than just entertainment, really. It seems to be a great waste when it's done like that. Well, just for entertainment? Yeah. Although, you know, good though the entertainment is, I mean, it, you can, you can make more of it, you can communicate a lot better with people. When the three of you listen to music, whether it's on records or you go to see other performers, what kinds of things do you like to hear? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that group. <coughs> I think initially, I think most people are attracted by sound or a, or a beat. But after that, I think people in England certainly anyway, like the kids in England, like look for like something else in the music, mm -hmm. like, you know, what it's actually saying. So I suppose I feel the same way, really. I'm, I'm attracted by the initial sound. But after that, I look for more, you know, what else is in there. That's Paul Weller on an interview with Tom Snyder in 1981. You're listening to The Jam right now on Ghost Town with Creepy Steve. You just heard their first single, In the City, which charted in uh, the top 40 in England. And uh, in early May, the band released their debut album of the same name. Now, this created a lot of excitement, and they also released a uh, post-LP single all around the world, and that reached the UK Top 10. So this was a big uh, jump for them. They were pressured by their record label to go ahead and release another album ASAP, and uh, which they did in 1977, later that year, titled The Modern World. Here's the title track, The Jam. This is a modern world. This is a modern world. What kind of fool do you think I am? You think I know nothing of a modern world? All my life is been the same. I've learned to live by hate and pain. It's my inspiration drive. I've learned more than you ever know. I know where I am and going to 
used to be a club called the Vortex, which is like like a, a punk club. It was like the sort of post-punk sort of you know days where the original kind of sort of unity feeling of, of the original punk thing, like the '76 thing, was off, you know was like sort of broken down. And it's I mean and it's it's really it was the beginning of what it's like in England now. It's like sort of sections of people like you got skinheads and mods and punks and there's no kind of like unity feeling amongst it. It's all kind of like these little tri different tribes of people. And really, I suppose that's, you know, that was basically, I think, really what that song was about, because that was like, around that time, that was like the start of that. The thing sort of split up. With the punk movement, you even played support for bands like the Spranglers. Did you really uh, feel uh, something in common with, uh, with this movement at that point? Yeah, the original one, yeah, definitely. But I don't think, I think it, <clears throat> it got sort of, you know, corrupted, really. Like the, the original sort of, you know, the original ideals of it were really good, and we, that's what we 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 identify with. About no, you know, no sort of bullshit bands anymore. Just you know, and bands on being honest and breaking down that whole sort of star thing. Because inevitably, you get recognised in the street, so you're considered by the audience initially, like stars. Mm. How do you manage to do it? Well, I mean. The way we, we try to do it is just by sort of meeting kids like afterwards, after the gigs. And like, you know, things like letting kids in for sound checks. And also not talking to like the daily papers, you know. Who are like, you know, who pick up on that sort of big mystique thing. That's Paul Weller from a French TV interview, 1982. Hope you're enjoying this uh, block of the jam. They are well-deserved as such a tribute. All right, before that interview, you heard News of the World, written and sung by bass player Bruce Foxton. That one rocks pretty heavy. He had his uh, two cents in there for uh, a few singles, um, but just never found the, uh, the popular appeal with his songwriting that uh, Paul Weller did. So in the later years, they basically stuck to what worked. But uh, Bruce had a couple of hot numbers in there. Um, after that single, um, they released their uh, their next single in lieu to their their third LP, All Mod Cons. Now, this single really regained their former critical acclaim, going back to their uh, their roots. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just get right into this. This is down in the tubes. <sighs> Hold on one second. Catching my breath here. Still getting going from my uh, my late start there. So, bear with me. Okay, here's the jam down in the tube station at midnight. You're listening to Ghost Town with Creepy Steve. Fight! 
Introduce me to your two friends, please. The drummer. This is uh, good old what? Good old what's his name? <laughs> this is Jim Buckler. He's been on conflicting reports, and this is Bruce. Hello, Bruce. Very nice to have you with us. You know, I mentioned the fact that you've had mixed reactions with American audiences. Does it change from city to city? Yeah. Well, say for instance, last night was about the uh, closest thing that it's been so far. That was San Francisco. How do you explain that? I don't know. I really don't know. Don't you, have, no, don't you have the same thing in, no, don't you have the same thing at home? I mean, you play a different town that's different from, uh, you know, Birmingham is different from Manchester or whatever? Not really, no. Not in uh, not any great sort of, great difference in that. There's more consistency there. That was a Holland Dozier Holland song. You wrote all the other songs in the album. What influenced you? Did they? Yeah, partly, but I mean, I'm influenced by, we're all influenced by everything, you know. 
Have you met the spinners who were here today? No. That's, a, that's a Motown group from years ago. We were talking about their influences, which go back to the early 50s. Is there any way to categorize this music? You started out in the, uh, well, must have been the same time as the Sex Pistols. They call it, what do they call it then? Well, our music. Yeah. It's just jam music. Just jam anything. Jam music. That's it. It doesn't, you know, people don't usually like to label music, but I'm afraid that they're doing it these days more and more because of the disco thing having up. They're trying to find the, uh, the new label for the new kind of music. Where do you think you'll be at the end of the 80s musically? Do you have any idea? <coughs> I don't know. No, no idea. We don't think about it. We only think in terms of like next sort of six months or something because it's not worth thinking any further. All right. Explain the next song to me, if you will. What was the inspiration for it? Do you write it? Yeah, this is, uh, I don't know. It's called Strange Town. It's about, I suppose, alienation in a strange city. All right. Would you plan with doing it? All right. Strange Town, ladies and gentlemen, one more time, the jam.
album by The Jam called Setting Suns has been described as one of the best albums of the year. Earlier this week, all three of The Jam came into Capitol Studios and were met by John Pigeon. He started off by asking them if they felt that the beginnings of the new wave were a crusade. I don't know, is it a bit pretentious to say it was a crusade, but it just... It's just the obvious thing, you know, it was, it was like the, the logical sort of step for like music in the 70s and the 80s. You know. Couldn't carry on the way it was going, but then, you know. Why? Because I mean, it, it was, was, it was the, the, I mean, the pistols were the catalyst, you know. And therefore, I mean, it just, and it's just banged us, sort of, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we carried that on and continue to do so, you know. It certainly put a lot of, uh, a lot of life into, into, into especially live work, you know. A lot of bands, well, I'm, I can remember going to concerts uh, years ago, and although they might have been a good band and everything, there was always something sort of missing. You know, people just sat there and, and accepted them for what for what they did. But don't you think there is a thing that the kids do, I mean, still want to have heroes? Uh, some sections, maybe. Well, you, I mean, you, you know, if you talk about collectively, yeah, I suppose they are. But, you know, for all the kids that you meet, sort of, are one to one and that, you know, after the gigs and that, it's, oh, it's a different situation. One of the things you were trying to do, presumably, was, I mean, maybe without consciously thinking of it, was to, like, kick the pedestal away from under the, the stars. No, I don't think it was that so much. I think it was, it was probably uh, offering an alternative. It wasn't just a matter of somebody like a record company or the paper saying, this is it, this is fantastic, you know, and you going along sitting there going, yeah, great. I mean, I think people uh, could go and see more bands at a, at a local level and make up their own minds for that sort of thing. You know, it wasn't, wasn't all big business as it was in the past. Following two successfully and critically acclaimed uh, non-LP non singles, Strange Town and When You're Young, the band released Eaton Rifles in advance of their new album, Setting Suns. This became their first top ten, rising to number three on the UK charts, and they released the album in November of 1979. In, in the Eaton Rifles, inspired by skirmishes between demonstrators on a right-to-work march, a campaign initiated by the left-wing Socialist Workers' Party and pupils from Eaton College. Here they are, the jam.
cash for their untamed wit And some of the lads said they'll be back next week Well, that wraps up the 1970s for the jam. Going into 1980, the intended first single was to be Dreams of Children. But interestingly enough, due to a labeling error, the A and B sides of the single were reversed, resulting in the more conventional Going Underground, the single's planned flip side, which got much more airplane attention than Dreams of Children. Here they are, the jam. I'm a bloody boss. Spain, she 
music anymore at the moment. There's, I mean, there's a few good bands around, but there's nothing, nothing really happening. And I think people are getting very, in England anyway, getting very apathetic again. And I think maybe that's the same in the rest of the world. It's either, it's either divided up into like heavy metal dirge or nonsense disco music. Or otherwise, it's like all the so-called new wave groups are just doing exactly the same things all the previous bands used to have done. Like there's no difference between The Clash and Genesis or Led Zeppelin as far as I'm concerned. And we're just looking to try and do something really exciting and something different. And I think that <laughs> we're getting bogged down in places in Europe because they still got this impression that we're just like 60s revivalists, which we're not. What we're doing is we consider to be totally new. And, it's, and it's, although it draws its, its uh, influences from the 60s, it's something different. And I just think we've got a lot more to offer them. So I think, you know, it's a question of getting, getting across that to people. The album Sound Effects was released in 1980. Paul Weller said he was influenced by the Beatles' Revolver and Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. Now we just heard Start, and if you know anything about Revolver and the song Taxman, you might have recognized a familiar sounding bass line and guitar solo. That's the thing about the jam, is they just really didn't uh, neglect or, uh, or they, they were shameless about all of their influences from all different kinds of music. They didn't have to feel uh, like they conformed to a certain type of niche audience. They did it for themselves, and that's why I respect them. Um, let's hear some more of uh, sound effects. Here's the jam. That's entertainment.
entertainment arguably the most noteworthy song of the jam if you're talking across the board uh, following their last release in 1982 the band split they were just too powerful and too passionate to uh to go on paul weller comments why stop now because i feel we've achieved enough you know i think we've done all we can do as the three of us i think it's a good time to finish it i don't i don't want to drag it on and going for like you know for the next 20 years doing it and become nothing mean nothing end up like all the rest of the groups you know i want this to count for something i want everything i've done you know the last five six years to count for something what could it count for it strikes me that after people get over the age of like 25 once they get their, their house and their wife and their kids you know ideals don't mean nothing you know what i mean all that matters you know I mean, it's not always their fault, it's just, it's just the environment, but all that really seems to matter is just that it's keeping that situation going, you know what I mean? I think, you know, I think it's important to believe in something in this life because, like, it's such a flimsy sort of system we got and a flimsy kind of culture, you know what I mean? How do you like to see the system change? I would like to see all those people with power who have always had the power and the wealth, I would like to see, um, I would like to see them done away with and I would like to see that power and wealth distributed properly, you know. I don't like, I don't like the way it's centralised. Is music going to help in that? I don't, I don't think music could overthrow it or, or change it directly. But I think, uh, I think it helps in, in terms of communicating to different people. I think it's, you know, because it's, it's the only real kind of culture that young people have got, you know. The 1982 release The Gift, the band's final LP, was a massive commercial success, peaking at number one on the UK charts. It featured several soul, funk, and R&B stylized songs, most notably the number one hit, A Town Called Malice. This boasts a Motown-style bass line somewhat reminiscent of the Supremes' You Can't Hurry Love. A Town Called Malice is another reality-based tale of dealing with the hardships of life in a small, downtrodden English town. Quite the way to go out on this band's noteworthy career. Here they are, the jam, one final number. You're listening to Ghost Town with Creepy Steve on WRFNLP Pasquo.
In their five years as a band, the Jam had 18 consecutive top 40 singles in the UK. And uh, after they broke up, 15 of their singles were re-released and all placed within the top 100. How's that for legacy? You're tuning into Ghost Town with Creepy Steve. That does it for the Jam Block. Hope you enjoyed that. I encourage you to explore them further. And uh, we're going to move right into this next one here. Very average in support. You know, if any other band would have done as many people. But it's the actual um, followers that did it. You know, that turned the key. We've been there for five years or more just waiting for this to happen. And now it's happened. It's like it's only a punk way of dressing. It's just dressing exactly how you want to look. And finding clothes that are original. Not like wearing everything that everyone else wears. You know, looking just a bit different. Have you tried to get a band together? Yeah, I did a, the 100 Club, the Hulk Festival. Susie and the Banshees. What did you see? The Lord's Prayer via Twist and Shout, knocking on Heaven's Door, and a bit of Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber Alley. <laughs> and what went down the first? <laughs> All of it. It got boring in some parts, but it picked up. And who was backing you up? Sid Vicious on drums. Steve Spunker on bass, Marco on guitar, and me just doing the vocals. Are you, are you a singer? Yeah. Have you sung before? Not on stage, no. Did you think that was important? Um, no. I remember when it was before, when they had the Stones and the Who, and they came along, and they thought they were great because they destroyed everything that went before them. But now they can't take it because we're destroying everything that's gone before us. That's all it is. Can you guess who? Susie and the Banshees. A makeshift formation in 1976, by the way. There was a festival in England in 1976 called the 100 Club Punk Festival. It's put on by Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren. There was a last minute slot to fill. Susie Sue, being inspired by her peers around her and driven by the culture, threw together a makeshift band, got up on stage, did a 15-plus minute rendition of the Lord's Prayer, and uh, it all started from that point. Honestly, they got their start mainly from doing live performances and actually had a hard time getting a record deal, as unconventional as they were. Um, but they were selling out venues in London in early 1978, still having problems. Finally, uh, a record label gave in to their uh, complete artistic control demand. That was Polydor. And uh, they signed them in June of 1978. First single, this.
who and what were the Bromley contingent? I believe you said there was no such thing. We didn't call ourselves the Bromley contingent. It was um, a title or a, a tag that was put on us by certain music people, press, journalists, that saw us and friends that we knew going to the early pistol gigs and other events in London that didn't have a big audience. For some reason, they thought we all came from Bromley. It's just Steve that comes from Bromley. And we were called the Bromley Contingent. So no real significance behind no. that particular title? No, not at all. In September 76, you played on the Bill of the Hundred Club Punk Festival. The lineup of the band then was yourself, Steve, Sid Vicious and Marco Peroni, now of Adam Ant fame, of course, who apparently was the only one who had played in a band before. Can you tell me a bit about that gig? The worst player at the gig was Marco because he had played before, <laughs> so it didn't fit in with us that way. It was another, another adventure, it was a very um, special event and um, when you think that a lot of bands rehearse, invite record company people down to see them, they work really hard and their first gig is usually like teething problems or something, we created a very strong impact from that one-off gig that was just thrown together literally and we were infamous from that day onwards. Just as she said it. Susie and the Banshees released their debut album, The Scream, in November of 1978. Nick Kent of NME said of the record, The band sounds like some unique hybrid of the Velvet Underground mated with much of the ingenuity of Tagomago era can, if any parallel can be drawn. At the end of the article, he added this remark, Certainly, the traditional three-piece sound has never been used in a more unorthodox fashion with such stunning results. I'm going to play a few tracks here off the screen. Happens to be my favorite album. I love the early stuff. But man, Susie and the Banshees got so far out. We're going to continue through this journey, and uh, you'll hear the difference. Here's Jigsaw Feeling.
WRFNLP Pasquo. Ghost Town with Creepy Steve. You're right smack in the middle of a Susie and the Banshees spotlight. And we're having a good time here on this Sunday. Hopefully you are too. Maybe you're driving around, looking at trees and listening to these uh, these great sounds. We are uh, still in the early stages of Susie's career. Um, here's an interview from the mid-80s of her talking about the early days and the mid-70s. Would you remember the periods in which this photograph was taken? Yes, 77 in, I think that's Carnaby Street, actually, not the King's Road. <laughs> what do you remember from that period? What do I remember? Um, in the article? Being, I suppose a lot of violence directed at, I mean, it's very much, um, there's a lot of myth-creating because of the decade now. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it was just a very dangerous time to live in, really. Although that um, 
we and other people were making statements that they weren't accepted, whereas now they are. What kind and of people were, I mean, not slogans, but I mean, actually um, making a statement just by the way you looked or by the way you sounded was very much uh, anti what was expected. And just walking down the streets, I mean, this is even before I was in the group. I mean, uh, you know, I've had my, my nose nearly broken and, I mean, you know, severe. I mean, it's very violent. There was a lot of socialising in a lot of gay clubs. Uh, the gay clubs were um, probably the most exciting place to go to. Mm -hmm. And um, just remember um, people used to congregate there, although it wasn't the masses and it wasn't in the media that that was where to congregate. So it wasn't, you didn't have any, uh, so much voyeurism. People actually partook in the atmosphere. There was no, you know, there was no watching. People took part. Um, but I suppose as a group, we, I, we formed, I suppose, because we didn't particularly like what uh, was represented, I suppose. I think that should be the case for anyone. All right, one more off the scream, and then moving on.
There it is. I got to wait for that last guitar sound. Right in the middle of a Susie and the Banshees block here on Ghost Town. I'm Creepy Steve. Hopefully not too creepy. Don't want to scare any ladies out there or grandmothers. I know the grandmothers are still tuned in. Thank you much. So you heard the scream there. That's uh, three tracks off the uh, debut album of Susie and the Banshees. They followed up with their second album, Join Hands, in 1979 and uh, embarked on a major tour to promote the album. A few dates into the tour, though, uh, guitar player and uh, drummer, drummers Morris and McKay left an in-store signing after an argument with the band, and uh, that postponed the tour dates for a minute, but they recruited drummer Budgie, formerly of the Slits, and after several failed auditions of a guitar player, uh, supporting act The Cure, uh, frontman Robert Smith volunteered his services, and after the struggle of trying to audition, the band went for it and continued the tour in September, and after the last concert, Smith returned to The Cure. There's some great footage out there on YouTube, um, also uh, some live stuff you can find through all the regular channels. Um, he also rejoined them again a little later after their next guitar player left, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but after the tour, Budgie became a permanent drummer member and uh, actually later on kind of formed a, uh, definitely formed a relationship with Susie uh, that was extra musical. And uh, they entered the studio in 1980 to record the single Happy House. They recruited uh, new guitarist John McGeoch, formerly of Magazine, and uh, their third album, Kaleidoscope, was released in 1980. Um, this saw the Banshees exploring new musical territories with the use of other instruments like synthesizers, sitars, and drum machines. That was just the time uh, that started coming, becoming a prevalent part of the music. Um, Kaleidoscope was a commercial, su commercial success. It peaked at number five in the UK album chart list. Um, and this lineup, which featured McGeoch on guitar and Budgie on drums, toured the U.S. for the first time in support of the album. Uh, they played their first shows in New York City in November of 1980, so a huge step for the band. Um, the next album, Juju, in 1981, the band took a different approach and practiced the songs in concert for the first time. Honestly, that's not really a new approach. It was kind of a revised approach um, that they did in their early years uh, before they were able to get signed. It was all about their live music, and that's really how they crafted their sound in the beginning. Um, so this is more of a return for them. Um, this album later peaked at number seven in the UK album charts and became one of their biggest sellers. In the 82, they released uh, their album Kiss, A Kiss in the Dream House, and uh, this, was, this is another one of my favorites. Um, definitely has a smooth, more sexy sound to it. Um, they created a theme of live um, string instruments in the studio, and they kind of... Uh, after a session one day with all the string musicians, they created a loop and they worked that sort of in and out of the album. Um, and here they are to talk about it in a French interview. You and your band uh, don't like to be uh, identified with either punk or any wave. Why? Uh, it's like we're, we're in the rock business, which we don't like to feel a part of. And like, mm -hmm. if we say, yes, we're a rock and roll band, that's like we're alongside with... Um, Bruce Springsteen or yeah. you know, Leonard Skinner or which is doesn't describe us at all. We're definitely nothing like so that. We retain our own identity within it. Mm. This album, A Kiss in the Dream House. What makes this uh, album different from the previous ones? Half of it, or over half of it, was 
um, created very spontaneously in the studio and working from sounds of things and uh, images and words like circle. Do you sometimes improvise lyrics in the studio? Mm. Uh, slow dive was slow an improvised dive. lyric. Obviously, Steve went in and was just getting a sound on, on the bass guitar, on a six-string bass. Mm -hmm. He was just playing around. He'd never played six-string before. And, um, Mike Hedges and myself were in the studio and I just turned to put the tape on. We taped it. Steve came in and listened. I went out and joined him. Just about ten minutes of just that one chord, if you like. And you went out and wrote some lyrics, just on hearing it. Oh, right? just hearing it, and I was writing and dancing. Let, let me in and sing. <laughs> and that was it. But you can't reveal the key to slow dive. I, it's, it's very, it's like, um, if, if you're making music, you're making it because you're expressing something that you can't say in words. Mm -hmm. So for me to explain what that is, is taking away something that you lose when you say, when you're just using speech. With music, it, it should speak for itself.
Right, despite becoming musically proficient and gaining public acceptance, because of your early image, people tended to mistrust you and you had a lot of problems getting a record deal. Correct. Um, it was a lot to do with um, a lot of groups around that time were making music and looking um, like the very immediate short-term thing that the record companies wanted people to be. Like, like what's happening now, like you get record companies that will sell one band, they'll be like in the top five or ten for two records and then they'll disappear. That's exactly what the record industry wanted to do with what they called punk rock music. So you got um, loads of old sheep dressed up in lamb's clothing, looking like what they thought was punk, you know, just like a uniform playing nothing with any uh, depth or any lasting appeal and that was fine for the record business because they, they didn't like what some bands were doing especially what we were doing I think they considered us threatening the fact that we saw it as a long-term thing and w what we wanted from record, the record contract was uh, wasn't stupid I mean a lot of the people like were very stupid when they signed up and didn't demand anything from the record company so they were laughing they they got something for nothing, and the silly bands just took the bait and faded away. In fact, another quote which I've got written down here. We'll do it on our own terms. We're not going to water down our music to make it acceptable to people who sit behind desks. Can you remember that? Yeah, I don't know if I did or Steve said that, it's, but it's uh, an opinion that we all felt. Um, it's, it's the same as the question before. It's like if you want to tart it up and make it something to laugh at or something that's um, instantaneous that won't last long and do it and like be a bit of a, a, a slag and do all the things that bands are supposed to do be like very submissive and do what they want you to do do you know ridiculous amounts of interviews silly photo sessions to cater for the teeny bop magazines and all that kind of thing your music was once described as and i quote boring sub hippie drivel dressed in knickers for the sake of art nick lowe said that who's uh, pushing 40 now i think <laughs> Okay, how would you describe your music then? Mm, just dressed up in knickers. <laughs>
think about the current punk boom? Do you think it can be likened to the 76, 77 thing? Humbug, humbug, pure humbug. Poppycock. No, it's ridiculous. It's, um, it's a uniform already. It's like a, uh, calling yourself a hippie in the early 70s or late 70s and thinking you were daring. It wasn't. It was uh, very acceptable. And the people that took the risk were the people that were either beaten up in the street for looking the way they did or picked on by the establishment or whatever. And I think it's the initial people that take the risks. All right, we're about to wrap it up for Susie and the Banshees. Hope you've enjoyed. Um, yeah, I got to cut it, cut it off somewhere. I mean, she uh, they went on and on to produce some really great music. I encourage you to explore it further. Um, just one of those, you know, right out of the punk scene, mid London. I mean, mid seventies London, and uh, really took the flag and ran with it. Um, explored some some intense territories and definitely did did not limit themselves. Um, so that's definitely something to be appreciated and respected. Um, so yeah, the original lineup of Kenny Morris, Susie Sue, John McKay, and Stephen Severin uh, broke up, um, as I was saying before, right in the middle of that tour, and they picked up McKeok and Budgie. Um, unfortunately, after the uh, Kiss in the Dreamhouse album, McKeok fell into a alcoholic um, abyss, and uh, he had to get let go. Again, they signed on The Cure's Robert Smith to uh, work with them around that time. Um, but some, some personnel changes, um, uh, but I think that helped them grow even further. Um, we are going to listen to one last track, single love and avoid. And then, uh, I'm going to finish off the rest of the show here until two o'clock central with just a mix of some, uh, music from around the same time period. You're listening to ghost town with creepy Steve on WRFN LP Pasquo.
action-packed. There you go, two singles from them. That was Johnny Fontaine, and before that, Drowning Out the Big Jets. Tell you what, that's George Cheeks on vocals. Not only is her name George, but check out that voice, man. She's able to scream over those guys, loud music. I've got mucho respect for her. Action-packed, a lot of great singles off their Mercury on the Air LP. Um, Great stuff there. We've got a few more minutes left. Looks like... About 13 more to be exact. You're listening to Ghost Town. I'm Creepy Steve. I want to remind you that uh, there's a show you need to check out. Remember how you felt when you put a stack of 45s on your record changer? Well, you can relive that feeling every Tuesday at 7 with the flip side, where, where Mr. C showcases the A and B sides of real 45s. The flip side, Tuesdays at 7 on Radio Free Nashville. Got a few more tunes for you. Again, I'm Creepy Steve. Stay tuned. This is the Chameleons. I'm not 
All right, you've been listening to The Chameleons, Radio Free Nashville. This is Creepy Steve. Hope you enjoy my debut. I'm about to get on out of here and let RFN Weekend take over. But I will be back next Sunday, moving forward. Sundays from noon to 2, that's Central, if you're streaming. And uh, it's, it's been fun. I got one more track for you here, then uh, he's going to come in and do his thing. This might fade out early. But uh, please stay tuned. RFN Weekend. (laughs) 